Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Our fascination with miracles is inextricably tied up with our fear of death. Miracles give us hope for preservation from suffering and ultimately an escape from death. They not only give us hope for a short-term solution to a problem facing us, but more importantly, they reveal the reality of God and so give us hope for the ultimate solution to the problem of death. That's how my guest's book, The Catholic Guide to Miracles, begins. Um, It's a very straightforward look at what's at stake in the facticity or not of miracles. Adam Bly is the author of The Catholic Guide to Miracles, Separating the Authentic from the Counterfeit. He's a peritus, a church decree expert in religious demonology and exorcism for the Diocese of Pittsburgh. He's an auxiliary member of the International Association of Exorcists, which is a Vatican-recognized private association of the Christian faithful based in Rome. In over uh, 15 years of working and training in the exorcism ministry, he's witnessed or experienced a number of miracles, some of which uh, he has been appointed to investigate by the Church. He also works in the Tribunal of the Pittsburgh Diocese and is pursuing a canon law degree. Well, Adam, it's good to make your acquaintance. Thank you. Oh, sure. It's good to meet you, too. This, I I really do like the way you began the book, because... um, there, I can going way back to when, to when I was seventeen. It really struck me that the one thing I could be most certain of was that I was going to die, and that I didn't see any escape from it. Um, it seemed to me that was about as self-evident as anything I could see. Dead men stay dead is what I told myself. Of course, that was a long time ago. Uh, I've come to think something different since. But that really is, for a lot of people, that is pretty bleak. Uh, that's what they see as the one, um, the one truth that they cling to. So the question of if miracles don't happen, they don't have a very good uh, hope to escape death. So uh, I guess we should ask, what, how do you define miracles? Well, the Church, um, you, you kind of want to go back to Thomas Aquinas, as with so many things in the Church. Yeah. He laid it out pretty well. So the simplest answer is a miracle is something only God can do. You know, mankind can't do it, nature doesn't do it. Uh, but the more nuanced answer is when God either does something that nature never does, like the sun dancing in the sky at Fatima, yep. uh, that, that just never happens in nature, when God does something that nature does, but in a different order. So uh, when, you know, as you just said, we live and then we fit, our physicality dies. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, he went in the opposite order. He went from a state of death to a state of life, and, and it doesn't happen in that mm-hmm. order in nature. And then the third one is when God does something that nature does, but much faster. So if uh, we get sick, we might take four days, ten days or more to recover, say, from a cold or a flu. Uh, but when there's a miraculous healing, it's it's instantaneous, yeah. complete, and lasting. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Church has a pretty uh, rigorous approach to miracles, would you say? Yes, the Church tends to uh, only 
really investigate miracles kind of in two circumstances. One is when they're looking at potential miracle to support somebody being declared a saint, and that's taken very seriously and studied um, very rigorously because they want to be absolutely sure. And the other time is when people claim to have had unusual experiences, um, such as uh, apparitions of Mary. So it's not that every person that thinks they saw Mary merits the bishop, you know, allocating people and resources to look into that. They don't investigate everything that people claim. But when there's something substantial going on, meaning something really unusual that's objectively, uh, that objectively happened, the Church may, may look into those also. So it's basically around sainthood cases, and then really extraordinary events. Okay. Um, you start the book off with miraculous healings, after you deal with the question of definition in, in biblical uh, miracles. Uh, uh, miraculous healings. In your study, uh, what do you think are the most compelling of the miraculous healings that you've either witnessed yourself or read carefully about? Well, I've known people that have been cured of cancers where a very recent one, it was um, about six or seven weeks ago, actually, uh, where the person had been um, diagnosed via MRI plus biopsy of the tissue that came back positive for cancer and then had their lymph nodes biopsied, needle biopsy, and verified that the cancer cells were in the lymph nodes. Um, So that's pretty serious, and they they were planning the surgery to remove as much as they could and started chemotherapy, and then right before the surgery, they wanted to do one more test in order to get more detailed information. I'm not a doctor, but in order to plan the surgery about how much they were taking. And the person had gone to, um, there's a woman who's up for sainthood in Canton, Ohio, Rhoda Wise, um, and they had visited that house and sat in her chair and, and been prayed over by a priest and anointed there. And the next day they had this final test before the surgery and everything was gone. Uh, there, was, <laughs> wow. there, was, there wasn't, um, so they canceled the surgery and didn't really understand it. Um, but, you know, that's just one example. I've known uh, a number of others through priest friends where uh, one kind of extraordinary one, a person was really on their deathbed, um, probably, you know, hours or days from, from passing in the hospital. They had a lot of organs shut down, liver had shut down, that kind of thing. And um, they had a congenital problem where they, they only had one kidney their whole life as they were just kind of born that way. And... Uh, after a priest friend of mine had prayed over them, they not only the next day were up, sitting up in bed and able to get up and walk to the restroom themselves, um, when they were then doing a bunch of testing to figure out what had happened that this person was recovering, they actually found two kidneys. Wow. Um, and they just said, well, we must have made a mistake before and missed it somehow. Um, yeah, right. But, yeah, mm. so, I mean... There's, there's kind of a long list of those kind of things yeah. that, you know, the you want to look for, like, medically verified situations that, that baffle the doctors. Sure. Uh, people have often pointed out that even in the face of miracles, many people don't seem to get a you know, spark of faith. <clears throat> Is that largely because they just assume 
I mean, they presuppose that miracles can't happen. And so in the presence of a claimed miracle, they simply shrug and they say, oh, I don't know. Life's weird, uh, but I don't have to accept it as a miracle. I think that depends on the individual's personality. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think some people are very staunch in their position that that it's impossible and any claim just means you misunderstood. Right. I think, you know, I think other people maybe are intellectually lazy and they're not willing to wrestle with the data Mm -hmm. and and really study it. Um, You know, and and I think in our modern Internet kind of soundbite way of thinking um, and the way social media has trained us to always take an extreme position in order to get attention I think a lot of people will fly to an either over, overwhelmingly kind of uh, effusive, you know, this is wonderful, it's absolute proof, or, you know, a mock- mockery. So I think there's a bunch of possible factors there. Um, but in the end, I think, you know, it kind of comes back to the grace that God may give you to, to understand that miracle and, and have it kind of resonate with you, just like you need grace in order to really unpack the scripture, you know, you need the Holy Spirit to inspire you. Um, you know, a line in the Bible might not resonate with you, and then 10 years later you read it and it, and it rocks your world. Right, and, right. and that's that's something God is providing for you. So yeah. I think it's the same thing with miracles, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're not just spectacles. Uh, they often occur in the context of a, a person's uh, life, their quest, uh, their, uh, their story. Um, Mm-hmm. The um, apparitions of the Blessed Mother, we had a burst of them in the 19th century. Do you, is that, uh, is there any special, do, are you aware of any special reason why we seem to have more claims from the 19th century than earlier centuries? Well, I, my guess is from, you know, studying, I guess, a moderate amount um, on this is that as we've moved into the industrialized age and, and we now have the capability to wage war, um, you know, in, in, at, in a big scale, uh, I think things in a sense are different and stakes are different yeah. for the world. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if you look at, if you look at Fatima, it was about World War One ending and about the danger of World War Two coming and mm-hmm. a warning about the sign in the sky that if we didn't repent and come, and, and that did come in terms of the sky turning red yeah. the eve before Hitler started World War Two in earnest, and he saw the same sign and, and made a comment that he took it as an affirmation to move forward. So, you know, that was about the war, and then um, it seems like if you look at Akita, which in a sense was a follow-up, to those warnings, um, it's it's also about repenting and the fact that in our our modern world, as we're moving away from God, and we're instituting a lot of things um, that are really contrary to God's laws, such as you know, abortion becoming kind of a huge mainstream thing yeah. in the modern world. So you know, we're moving away from God in terms of uh, our culture. We're instituting a lot of things against God's word, and we're also killing ourselves in ways that, you know, in human history just have never been possible before. So I think that's why there's more attempts from heaven to wake us up. Very good. Now, that makes a great deal of sense to me. 
My guest is uh, Adam Bly. The book is called The Catholic Guide to Miracles, Separating the Authentic uh, from the Counterfeit. We've been talking about just a few aspects of it. We're going to continue on the other side of the break. Uh, we'll talk about the stigmata. Uh, we'll talk about you know, some of the kind of remarkable, uh, very remarkable uh, claims, like levitation. Uh, we'll certainly talk about Eucharistic miracles, and we will talk about uh, demonic activity, uh, oppression, uh, possession, uh, control. I know the language uh, surrounding the phenomenon uh, varies. But it's called The Catholic Guide to Miracles, Separating the Authentic from the Counterfeit. It's a very careful look at these phenomena. I'm Al Cresto. We'll be right back. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Adam Bly. He's the author of The Catholic Guide to Miracles, Separating the Authentic from the Counterfeit. And again, the uh, book is uh, wonderfully written. Uh, it uh, shows, uh, again, a, a rigorous uh, approach to this uh, question of detecting um, preternatural and supernatural phenomena. Uh we talked about some apparitions, Blessed Mother, uh, last segment. We talked about some miraculous healings. Let me let me jump to an area that uh, you have special expertise in, and that is the area of exorcism and demonic manifestations. Uh, usually, when this comes up in you know uh, mental health circles, we're told that well. Uh, Demon possession uh, was misunderstood. Uh, it's a form, form maybe of epilepsy or other kind of psychiatric problem, uh, neurological problem. And now we've gone beyond it. Uh, we no longer need uh, a recourse to invisible entities uh, called demons to, to understand or describe uh, these very unusual phenomena. Uh, do you have to deal a lot with psychiatric problems when you're presented with claims of exorcism? Sure. The Church reasonably requires that anybody who's asking for an exorcism have an outside mental health and medical evaluation by licensed professionals in order to tell us whether they have a diagnosis that would explain their complaints and then to treat it if it's there. So, yeah, the Church is not opposed to, to medicine and science at all, in fact, relies on that. Um, I guess it would, I would say two things. One is it's not really so much the case of what you just described. So the current version of the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, it's mm -hmm. called the Bible of Psychiatry. Right. Uh, in the current version of it, actually um, now describes possession as a separate uh, phenomenon that's recognized in certain societies in the world and doesn't dismiss it as um, just a, a misunderstanding huh. uh, and, de and describes it as, you know, the belief that the body can be inhabited by other spirits. So it's not saying that possession has like a diagnostic code, but it's 
moving towards acknowledging that more fully. So the previous version of the DSM had it in the section of new considerations at the back, and this version has moved it to a, a separate uh, phenomenon. Uh, and they're separating it from the other dissociative disorders, which is usually where it would have been placed as right. a dissociative disorder that's being misunderstood. And, and they're separating it from that category and saying it's a separate phenomenon on its own. So, and, and in addition to that, I can tell you that though, of course, uh, many doctors would be dismissive of this idea as, as medieval nonsense and all of that, mm-hmm. there's also a lot that are not. So I've had many conversations with psychiatrists or psychologists who are assisting people that are also going through exorcism that have been very open conversations where they're very curious because they see such dramatic improvements in the person as the demons are removed that they want to understand more of what's going on. Hmm. And then also over the years, I've had, you know, phone calls from like state institutions where they can't formally like openly let you know say this but privately they'll say you know we have this case uh doesn't respond to medication the person's speaking in other languages they've done some really scary things we can't control it we can't sedate them etc etc and they'll say like you know we we wouldn't be able to publicly say this but you know this person's possessed do you have any advice for us so there's a difference between kind of the armchair uh, critic assumption about possession versus the reality of, of when doctors sometimes bump into it. It's a rare phenomenon, but they do sometimes bump into it. And then, so so number one, it's not as simple as all doctors are dismissive. They're not. And then number two, I would just remind anybody wanting to take that position that schizophrenia doesn't make you suddenly fluent in ancient languages. Um, <laughs> epilepsy, epilepsy doesn't suddenly make you know somebody's secret sins that, that nobody else knows about to recount them. Mm-hmm. Um, mental illness doesn't make you suddenly be able to tell me which saint's relic is in my pocket that I haven't mentioned to anybody. These kind of things are what we see, and in fact the Church requires that you document these extraordinary signs. Not all of them. But the, the classic signs are knowledge of all languages, knowledge of hidden things a person couldn't know, detecting the holy when it's not obvious, hmm. and, then su- and then supernatural strength, which is kind of the weakest sign, because we do see bursts of incredible strength in inpatient psychiatric settings. Yeah. But essentially, epilepsy and mental illness, bottom line is, doesn't make you suddenly speak Greek. Um <laughs> That's good. But, but in fact, these creatures do speak all languages. Yeah. Uh, since the 1950s, there's been an explosion of activity in Pentecostal circles about deliverance ministries and various types of approaches to demon possession. How does a Catholic approach to demonic phenomena differ from the, the kind of um, grassroots Pentecostal approach? Well, uh, so, so the Protestant Reformation happened, you know, in the 1500s, and when they broke away, they wanted to take more of a sola scriptura approach, basically scripture alone, for the most part. Mm-hmm. And so um, they also, in most cases, removed the sacraments, and it, and it became more of just, you know, the Mass wasn't the Mass anymore, it wasn't the Eucharist, it was just a kind of a, a feeder to recreate the Last Supper kind of thing. 
So the, the critical difference between the Catholic approach to deliverance and exorcism versus the Protestant approach of any kind, in most cases, is the Catholic approach, the foundation of the pyramid is the sacramental graces, yeah. primarily confession and the Mass, which are hugely effective in helping to move cases forward, particularly confession and removing the rights the person is given to the demon, usually through black magic or playing with spirits in some way. Um, so that foundation for us is critical. And on that, after those are in place, that's when you may add deliverance prayers, which are essentially, Jesus, please help this person. It's a request to God to do it. And then on top of after that, if needed, you do what's called an imprecatory prayers, which is something like in the name of Jesus, get out, which is a direct interaction between the priest and the spirit. It's not just asking Jesus to do it. And so what the Church does, in addition to the sacrament as a foundation, the Church has the rite of exorcism. Um, there, is, there are prayers of exorcism in the Orthodox world. Um, uh, and then our, in the Catholic world, we have a formal book and rite of exorcism, mm -hmm. uh, which basically nobody has one that's as well-developed. Right. And so mm -hmm. when we use imprecatory prayers... We have a very formal rite uh, that's very liturgical, you know, and centered around the gospel, uh, but in, but includes those commands. And so there's kind of a, a bigger system. It's a pastoral process. It's not like in the movies where it's just one dramatic prayer and five minutes it's over. Right, right. Uh, you know, it's a process of catechesis, of confessing, of renouncing things, forgiving people that have harmed you, and then the prayers to remove those demons. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, yeah, I'd say there's a lot of differences. And, and in the deliverance world, in the Protestant world, it's essentially kind of the belief that any baptized Christian has the authority to cast out demons. And to some extent, that's true. And, and we have to remember Jesus can do whatever he wants. Right. So we have to be careful to not say, oh, Jesus would never do that. Um, it's not our place to say that. You know, the, the reference in in the Gospels when they said this other person's casting demons out and he's not with us, and Jesus said, leave him alone. Right, right. Um, you know, if he's not against us, he's for us. So we want to be careful about getting too haughty about this, but mm -hmm. the bottom line is the, the pure deliverance methods without the sacramental graces and without the rite of exorcism seem to only work up to a certain intensity of case. When you get a full-blown possession case um, with one of these more serious cases, generally that just agitates the case but doesn't resolve it. And mm. they, they often bring those cases to the Catholic Church. Interesting. Let me jump to Eucharistic miracles. Uh, I think most of my listeners have know about Lanciano, but uh, surprisingly, I don't think people are familiar with a more recent one, which is in Buenos Aires, 1996. What, uh, tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about that. Um, well, that was a case where a host uh, started to—it was left in water. I believe it had been found on the floor after Mass, and the normal procedure is to put the host in water and let it dissolve fully uh, before disposing of it in the proper sink in the sacristy, mm -hmm. um, a special sink just for the purpose that purpose. Uh, and in this case, uh, the— priest came back to check on the glass of water with the host in it that was kept in the tabernacle a couple days later, and instead of dissolving it 
it had started to look like there was drops of blood forming in it. And then he reported this to his bishop, who was um, Pope Francis at the time, was, I believe, the archbishop of the area. <laughs> and he, he said to just set it aside and keep uh, keep an eye on it. And it continued to turn red, um, blood-like, and looked more and more like tissue. Uh, so then, um, then Archbishop Borgoglio uh, had it sent to a medical doctor. And when they do this, they generally don't tell the doctors or the lab, the medical lab, where the sample came from. They simply send it and say, can you tell us what this is? Uh, and it came back that it was cardiac tissue, wow. um, which which is very consistent with Eucharistic miracles when they've been analyzed, which has been a number of them that come back as cardiac tissue. Hmm. Uh, and what happens after that? I mean, they, they have this remarkable uh, finding. Uh, what what do they do at that point? Do, do they frame it? I mean, what do they do with the, the specimen? Well, it varies. It's probably up to the local bishop, depending on the situation. Um, there have been some that have been kept on display, like Lanciano, um, for all these centuries, right. for people to see it kind of in a, in a monstrance. Uh, I don't recall anybody recording what they did in Buenos Aires with that, okay. with that particular case. Okay. Um, but yeah, often it's put on display for the faithful as an encouragement. Um, you know, I, you certainly wouldn't want to destroy it or dispose of it at that point. Right. Verified that it was miraculous. Right, right. I mean, you have to remember the Eucharist is is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus in all cases. It's just that it's more visible in the. So you would give it equal respect and, and honor that you would any consecrated host. Um, but because these are miraculously different, yeah, uh, generally they're put on display for the public. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, this is uh, a wonderful wonderful piece of work you've given us, uh, Adam. And uh, I know we've just scratched the surface uh, of the chapters here, but uh, it's a very handy uh, book. It's also it's not only encouraging, but it's edifying, and it gives us uh, a good sense of what we can trust and what we should be wary of. Thank you for being with me today. Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed it. God bless you. Adam Bly is the author of The Catholic Guide to Miracles, Separating the Authentic from the Counterfeit. Uh, it's really a very, very manageable book, about 160 pages, and uh, moves quickly. And very, again, very encouraging and edifying. <laughs> 